This morning, we continue our journey through every chapter of the book of Luke, one of the four biographies of Jesus in the New Testament. And today, we arrive at chapter 15. The chapter consists of three parables that Jesus tells, each about something that is lost, a lost sheep and more, a lost coin, and finally one of his most famous parables in our passage this morning, the parable we know as the prodigal son. In the Bible in the pew, if you want to see, it's um, Luke chapter 15, verses 11 through 32. We call this passage the parable of the prodigal son, but the parable has a second act featuring a different second son. I'm reading Luke chapter 15, verses 11 through 32 from the New International Translation. Please listen for God's word. Jesus continued, there was a man who had two sons. The younger one said to his father, Father, give me my share of the estate. So he divided his property between them. And not long after that, the younger son got together all that he had, set off for a distant country, and there squandered his wealth in wild living. After he'd spent everything, there was a severe famine in the whole country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to a citizen of that country who sent him to his fields to feed pigs. He longed to fill his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. When he came to his senses, he said, how many of my father's hired servants have food to spare? And here I am, starving to death. I will set out and go back to my father and say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. So he got up and he went to his father. But while he was still a far way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son, threw his arms around him, and kissed him. The son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. So they began to celebrate. Meanwhile, the older son was in the field. When he came near the house, he heard music and dancing. So he called one of the servants and asked him what was going on. Your brother has come, he replied, and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has him back safe and sound. The older brother became very angry and refused to go in. So his father went out and pleaded with him. But he answered his father, Look, all these years I've been slaving for you and never disobeyed your orders. Yet you never gave me even a goat so I could celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours who has squandered your property with prostitutes comes home, you kill the fattened calf for him. My son, said the father, you are always with me and everything I have is yours. But we had to celebrate and be glad because this brother of yours was dead and is alive 
again. He was lost and is found. Here ends this reading. This is the word of the Lord for the people of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thanks, Minna. So, over the generations, most of Jesus' best-known parables have acquired familiar names. These are sort of the shorthand titles by which English speakers refer to these. For instance, a Good Samaritan. Last week, we talked about the Great Banquet, um, the parable of the rich fool. And sometimes, the editor of a particular printed version of the Bible will include that title, that familiar name, in the section heading right before the passage that contains that parable. Yet, yet, those familiar names by which the parables have come to be known are not actually part of the original text of Scripture. The Greek manuscripts don't have any section titles. And because of that, you need to be a little bit careful because it's possible for the title by which tradition has come to know a particular parable, it's possible that that title will steer you into a particular understanding, a particular interpretation of the parable that may or may not be what Jesus originally intended. The parable we've been talking about, the parable Minna read a little while ago, tradition has come to call the prodigal son. Sounds like a fairly innocent title for this particular story, right? Well, think about it. That title, even before you hear the first word of this story, that title is already coaching you on which of the three characters in this parable are the most important, which one you should listen to, which one you should watch during the, as you listen to the story. Specifically, it tells you this title that this is mostly a story about the younger of two sons. And it is the younger of two sons who is the one of the three who is prodigal. Now, prodigal is one of those English words that we rarely use, almost only in the, the name of this parable. I wonder how many of you at work this week use the word prodigal? <laughs> Probably not. Well, my, my dictionary says that prodigal means recklessly extravagant, wastefully lavish. And so, by using the title prodigal son, we're saying, okay, this is primarily the story of a wasteful young man who goes and does all those things Nathan told us about, and finally, in the far country, he comes to his senses, he turns around, he returns home repentant, and in an ending that defies every cultural norm of the time, he is welcomed with open arms by his father. Well... It turns out that that story, that story of the younger son, has proven to be one of the most powerful stories in all of Scripture. People have discovered here a paradigm of real genuine repentance, but more importantly, a paradigm of real genuine grace on the part of this father, which of course means on the part of our father, God. This is a story that has transformed millions of lives. It is the subject of one of Rembrandt's most famous paintings, which happens to hang on the narthex wall. I can't see it right now, but it's right to the left of the fireside room. But the odd thing is that that title, The Prodigal Son, really only points to half 
of the story that Jesus told. And it might not even be the most important half. That name prodigal son pretty much implies that the important action of this story is over by verse 24 and those eight further verses that tell the story of that older brother are really just an afterthought. And I can imagine how generations of readers of Luke's gospel, as they read this 15th chapter of his story of Jesus' life, this chapter that, as Minna told us, contains these three stories, three parables of lost things, I can see how they jump to that conclusion, because those previous two stories really prepare your mind for a pretty simple narrative arc. Lost sheep, found. Lost coin, found. And now, okay, lost son, found. But if you jump back just a little further in chapter 15, if you jump back to the very first two verses of this chapter, and you pay attention to who it is Jesus is talking to when he tells these three stories, you begin to suspect that Jesus is up to something a bit more complex and a bit more subtle here. Because that crowd actually contained two sorts of people, Luke tells us. He tells us that part of that crowd were, well, lowlifes. Luke tells us. It was a crowd in which there were gasp tax collectors and other sinners. People for whom wasteful and reckless are not bad adjectives to describe their lives. But it is not those people to whom Jesus is responding with these stories. It is the other people in that crowd. It is the respectable folks. It is the righteous. It is the upright. It is the religious folks, the pious folks in that crowd. These are Bible teachers, Luke tells us. These are Pharisees. And they are indignant that Jesus would even hang out with the lowlifes that are in that crowd. In fact, they're concerned especially that by sharing a meal with them, Jesus not only legitimates them and their sinfulness, Jesus himself becomes ritually impure by coming in contact with them. And it is at the moment that Jesus hears those righteous people muttering about the lowlifes that he launches into these three parables about lost things. Now, two of them, as I said, are fairly simple. They are straightforward. They're kind of cheerful stories about lost things becoming found. And they're really the bait. They are the bait that Jesus lays out because he's drawing these angry, respectable people in until they find themselves in the middle of this third story, which is a whole lot more complicated and more complex. And it is this third parable that actually stretches and complicates the very concept of what it means to be lost. That at least is the claim of Presbyterian pastor and author Tim Keller. And I always say, if Tim Keller wrote it, it is something really, really interesting, really wise, and I really enjoyed his. It's called The Prodigal God, Recovering the Heart of the Christian Faith. What Keller says in this book is that this third story in Luke 15, this parable that we heard, should actually be titled The Parable of Two Lost Sons. Because, Keller says, there are two separate acts 
in this story. And each one's important, each one about a different son in this family. Keller says this second part, these last eight verses, are not an afterthought. In fact, they are an integral part of the story because through these two acts, Jesus intends to tell the story of two lost boys whose lives correspond to the two sorts of lostness that are possible for a person. One of them obvious, the other one a whole lot more subtle, and because it's subtle, a whole lot more dangerous. The first sort of lostness, Tim Keller calls younger brother lostness. And this is the classic kind of lostness that would probably come to our minds if we thought about that term at all. And yes, in the story, this younger brother is lost. Any son, in any culture, but especially in that culture, who would make this shocking request of his father, essentially saying, Dad, I want you to consider yourself dead, and I want you to give me my part of the, uh, of the estate, and then to go and to blow that in reckless and wasteful living. This is a son who is lost. He is lost from the relationship and the commitments that God intended for his life. But Keller says that in this second act, in these final eight verses, Jesus tells the story of a different, more subtle sort of lostness that he calls older brother lostness. And the irony is that this sort of lostness can disguise itself as dutiful obedience, as respectability. Keller actually takes this to a larger level, and he says that these two paths, these two trajectories, from these two paths really spring two basic ways that people, in general, set out to find fulfillment in the world. Some people, and you'll recognize these folks, are convinced that the only path to real fulfillment is through self-discovery, that every individual needs to pursue their own goals and their own self-actualization regardless of custom and regardless of convention. And in 21st century America, this is a story that we hear often. We hear often in movies and in TV shows that self-discovery is the most important thing. Others, though, would contend, they would counter this by saying, no, 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 happiness, fulfillment is only found through moral conformity by putting duty, by putting the interests and the standards of the community ahead of individual fulfillment. And the conflict between these two is probably familiar to every one of us. Every one of us who is part of a family has probably encountered this conflict in your own family system. He says this drama also permeates our entire culture and the conflicts within our culture. If that's the case, we need to pay attention to what Jesus is saying. What Jesus is saying, Keller says, in this deceptively simple parable is that you can head out on either one of these trajectories and end up lost. Because in this story, both brothers, the bad one and the good one, are lost. Each one is alienated. Each one is estranged from their father and from their brother. Each one, in fact, is miserable. 
And that would be fine if in telling this story, Jesus provided symmetric, happy endings to both acts of his story. But guess what? He doesn't. Act one, he resolves. Act two, he leaves hanging. Here's how Tim Keller puts it. Act two comes to an unthinkable conclusion. Jesus, the storyteller, deliberately leaves the elder brother in his alienated state. The bad son enters the father's feast, but the good son will not. The lover of prostitutes is saved, but the man of moral rectitude is still lost at the end of the story. We can almost hear the Pharisees gasp as the story ends. It was the complete reversal of everything they had ever been taught. And even the nice crisp categories of good son and bad son begin to collapse. By the end of the story, these two sons become more alike than they are different. Because the more that this older son says, the more words he articulates, the more you begin to realize how little he really cares for his father at all, this father that he has dutifully obeyed all of these years. Instead, it seems what this older son is really after, what he really wants is to stack up rights that he can use, to pile up leverage that he can cash in with the old man at some point. It really isn't a relationship that this older son is after with his father. It's more of a rock-solid contract. And the proof comes at the end because that older son is given this beautiful opportunity to delight his father's heart by saying, yes, I will go into that feast. But his sullen refusal to do so proves that the father's happiness was never really his goal at all. And what that means is that the older brother is really not so different than the younger brother after all. Both, in their own ways, chafed at the father's authority. Both hatch a scheme to escape the father's authority, to get out from under it. Both of them rebel. One rebels by being very bad. The other rebels by being extremely good. Is that not ironic? One of them by defying the father, the other by setting out to try and buy his favor. Younger brother lostness and older brother lostness. And yet both end up lost. The younger in that literal pigsty in the far country, hungry and far from home, but the older brother in a virtual pigsty of his own anger and resentment and insecurity and envy. The younger brother, at least, hatches this plan to become his father's servant and go and make an offer to become his father's servant. But in this really telling Freudian slip that's there in the text, the older brother reveals that he's felt like the father's slave all along. Younger brother lostness and older brother lostness. And it's when you step back from the parable, Tim Keller says, and you think about what Jesus is saying here, that you realize just how startling 
spiritually speaking, just how startling the implications are. Here's what he says. You can rebel against God and be alienated from him by recklessly breaking his rules. But also, and more insidiously, by keeping all of them fastidiously. Careful obedience to God's law can, counterintuitively, become a strategy for rebelling against God and for keeping a real relationship with God at arm's length. Now, if you know the story of Tim Keller, you know three decades ago he opened a church in Manhattan, and this church has had a remarkable mission and ministry of reaching out to young professionals in Manhattan, in New York City. And what that means is over all of those years, Tim Keller frequently comes in contact with this, this kind of classic and pervasive phrase that those young people would say. They say, you know, honestly, we're okay with Jesus. It's Jesus' followers that we have a problem with. It's the church. And Keller says, well, this is a bit of an oversimplification, but one explanation for the prevalence of that attitude is that the city is full of younger brothers. But the church, sadly, is often full of older brothers. People who have made a cold bargain with moral conformity and in that process have grown far from the warm and grace-filled love of the Father. And in this parable, remarkably, the younger brother at least knows that he's alienated from the Father. The older brother does not. And that's why elder brother lostness is so dangerous. And that's why I am so glad that in the original Greek manuscripts of this story, God hid a special warning for us in this room this morning. God gave us a personalized wake-up call in the original Greek manuscripts. And that's because do you know that in Greek, the adjective older, as in older brother, is the Greek word presbuteros. Does that sound familiar? It's in the name of our own congregation. It's like God saying, hey, you Presbyterians, you have to be especially on guard against older brother lostness. Because it was not a foregone conclusion that the older brother be lost. The story could have gone differently. And in one of my favorite passages from Keller's book, he he beautifully surmises or speculates on what might have been if only. If, Keller writes, that elder brother had only known his own heart, he would have said something different. He would have said, I am just as self-centered and a grief to my father in my own way as my brother is in his. I have no right to feel superior, then he would have had the freedom to give his brother the same forgiveness that his father did. The tragedy, Keller writes, is that elder brothers too rarely see themselves in that way. Too often their anger and their self-righteousness is a prison of their own making. Well, if that sounds dark, there's some good news. The good news is just as God is in the business of welcoming home the younger brothers of the world, running down that road and embracing them, God is also in the business of releasing us older brothers from our own prison of our own anger. 
But that cannot begin until we start to see ourselves and our younger brothers as, well, siblings. As Keller says, just as much a grief to my father in my own way as my brother is in his. But also, as much his delight to welcome into that feast. And that brings me full circle to the other thing that is wrong with the traditional title of this parable. Because it assigns the word prodigal to the wrong character in the story. If prodigal means recklessly extravagant, wastefully lavish, then it better describes the father and the father's love than it does the younger brother. Now, you often hear this, and validly so, in terms in referring to the extravagant love of the father for the younger son. Yes, the way that he takes off down that road with his robes hiked up around his knees at full tilt and embraces him and kisses him, that sort of unrestrained affection in this circumstance transgresses every code of modesty and decorum in that culture. Not to mention the ring and the robe and the fatted calf. What's not as obvious is that the love that the father shows the older brother can also be described as prodigal. That father has been snubbed by that boy not coming to the family feast. And yet the father leaves the feast. He seeks the older brother. He pleads with him to come in. That older brother has insulted and disgraced the father when he doesn't even address him as father, a very important thing in that culture. Nevertheless, the father tenderly calls him my son. And the question, as the parable ends, unresolved, is how will that older brother respond? Can he, against every older brother fiber of his being, utter the confession that his younger brother uttered? Because whether you are a younger brother or an older brother, that is how you unlock the prodigal love of our prodigal God.